All right, uh, Blair to Trumpets. This is episode 400 of Escape from Plan A. Teen, Philip, Chris, three of us here tonight. Did you guys think we could make it this far? Four, that's 400 plus hours of, of talking with you people. At Quality least 400 hours of incriminating audio for anybody <laughs> yeah. who uh, dares to dig up our past to find out what we well, said. You, you got to pay for half of them, so to be fair, you know. Well, we didn't start doing Patreon pods until, um, I believe, maybe episode 100-ish. So Man, I don't know how wow. many of those are behind the paywall. But, uh, I mean, it's all out there. We're not ashamed of anything we said. Uh, and you know what, 400, it's like at this point we've done several... Let's reminisce about our time. Uh, it's like 400, <laughs> 500, whatever. It makes no difference at this point. It's like when you get older and your birthday, you just don't give a damn. Yeah, whatever. It's just like, let's just, uh, let's just go out for some Burger King. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you know, we- you know I, I have actually tried to turn that around a little. Now, I don't, you know, like with birthdays. Mm-hmm. Oh, you I mean like, like giving I, a shit? Tr- take an ep- making an yeah, effort? Yeah, I like try to celebrate in some way. Okay. <laughs> These days, instead of being too coward, because because uh, it was risking, like I literally don't give a shit about. Oh, it. what what does that mean? Like pouring yourself a whiskey? Like what does that mean? Uh, no. This year I had uh I I we had like a family gathering, and uh, okay. I made I made prime rib for everyone. Oh, nice. Yeah. Oh, very nice. Yeah. So we didn't want to do absolutely nothing, but we did still want to acknowledge episode four hundred. Obviously, uh, a whole bunch of our team couldn't be here, so you know they're with us in spirit. And listeners, thank you for hanging out with us for all this long. Or maybe you joined in more recently still. Nevertheless, uh, thank you. Now we order you to go to our backlog and listen to every single minute. <laughs> and subscribe to our Patreon and buy yes. t-shirts, etc. Oh, uh, yes. And I don't want to promise anything, but, um, you know, Plan A, we're going to have a meeting soon. Uh, there could be possibly exciting new developments. I don't want to promise anything, but we have been in talks about, you know, you know, we've done 400 episodes. What, what? should we try doing next so we'll keep you up to date on that just rest assured that we are full of energy okay so this episode this past week new york magazine has come out with a bunch of articles having to do with the asian american condition uh so i think we're gonna go through that maybe a bunch of like stupid gossip and other uh, social media nonsense who knows we actually don't even have an outline for this episode we're just gonna <laughs> uh wing it and improvise so, all right, let's just get down to it, unless you guys have any um, things you want to get off your chest before we dive into the meat of this. No, let's do it. All right. So I think it was on Monday, New York Magazine comes out with this piece by Esther Wang, which is all about uh, this like paranoid, crime-obsessed Asian-American in the last couple of years. And I, I just thought it was very funny because, I, I, you know, I was just like, keeping an eye on Twitter about this. It got, it, it, I don't think it even got read that widely, but it also got ratioed, at least uh, the first New York Magazine post. Oh, which really? I wow. Was, which I thought was very funny. And uh, Philip, you shared that uh, Hot Pot Boys, which I guess is the, the Fung Bros new video podcast or something. I, I watched that. So, you know, it's on at least Asian American people's radars, but I just read it... Uh, in the last 30 minutes in preparation for this pod. So I want to get your guys' reaction. Teen, why don't we start with you? When you read this, what did you think? Wait, which one? You mean the whole thing or like any particular article? Uh, let's start with the first article that came out, which was the the Esther Wang piece. I saw a lot of hate for that one on on Twitter. And I and I know Henry, uh, our friend who's been on you know, the Dragon Combat Club, He's he was interviewed in that. Mm-hmm. And he was very upset about 
the characterization that they made. Well, initially he was happy. Cause he was happy. And then I saw, and I, I guess I read it and I thought it was like relatively harmless compared to like, say the Seth Berkman article, which we've Mm -hmm. discussed, which I thought was really bad. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This Esther Wang one was, you know, it was kind of like, you know, boring. I thought it was mostly boring. boring, Yeah. But it wasn't, I don't know. I I just didn't think it was that bad. It it didn't, it it was at least a little bit more. She was, you know, she's like, look, I'm scared. As an Asian woman, I'm scared. I'm scared of walking around the city by myself. You know, I'm operating under fear. And I think that that is at least uh, a step up from, you know, like people who are who don't live in New York or, or a big city live on campus or something and start saying like, oh, no, this is all overblown. It's all in your head. This is all like astroturfing, you know. So I don't know. I guess I didn't have much reaction. I still don't really know what to make of that article. I didn't think it was I, I felt it was just sort of like stream of consciousness from, a you know from 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 an asian american woman and living in new york city who is scared yeah so yeah philip what do you think i'm about on the same page i i do had i do have a a slightly different reaction kind of towards the end after watching that um fung bros video i mean my reaction was kind of similar to yours team like i felt like it was actually one of the better articles you know off of a very low bar (laughs) um largely because she did talk to henry at dragon uh comic club um, which he later characterized, like, or mentioned he was, he was characterized, like he was, it felt like he was um, not thrown under the bus, but like he felt like they, he was kind of used. But at least like when I first read it before I saw his big Asian ID post where he kind of like gave us a kind of behind the scenes look, I kind of applauded her. I was like, yeah, I mean, she actually was willing to talk to this guy and kind of take another look um, at this issue where, you know, that, that Berkman um, article did not really touch at all in, in that way, right? Um, it's coming from a completely different spot. Um, and so, but, but it was very lukewarm. I think Tina in, in our chat, you're describing it as like a lot of like hemming and hawing and like not really going anywhere. And, um, in the, the Fung Bros video, they, they kind of characterize it as like, if she, if she was like, you know, if it was like positive 2.5 points, which is like very pro-Asian or negative 2.5, uh, 2.5 points, which is like very anti-Asian, she was either at zero or like 0.5, right? Which maybe for an author like her and folks in her circles is extremely radical, <laughs> but for us is like, you know, not nothing new. Right. Um, but I think what, what I, as we're thinking about the video for a bit, what really um, came across me as, as a problem with this article is not that it was like lukewarm or good or bad. It was just an opportunity cost, right? Like how often do you think there's going to be another all Asian spread in a, a big, you know, liberal mag like New York magazine, which actually has some influence, like probably never. Right. And this is all we got, you know, from this, from this one chance of uh, having a, a, a platform to talk about this issue. So that's the point that really disappointed me, I think. Yeah. First of all, I just want to say, yeah, I watched that video as well. That 2.5, negative 2.5 scale was very odd. Um, I why know. not just make it like one to 10? But I think, yeah, that, that's the whole thing. The fact that this article was so boring and, and, pulseless is yeah. an indictment in and of itself it's like where's the fire and in that video uh i thought they had a good point where it, and, and we often talk about this issue it felt like an asian tourist writing about their own uh-huh. so-called community it there's uh-huh. such a remove from from the way these 
uh, blue check writers always write about Asian America, and, and and Philip, you're exactly right about that. It was very, it was very dead-eyed and, and emotionless, right? Like, yeah. I, you know, and I I kind of get she was trying to like play both sides, and maybe she was concerned about how her peers would think of her. Or she but that's exactly the problem. Why do you care what your peers think? Like, you shouldn't have to care. But that, they do. Yeah. They do. I mean, right. we know and, they got their chats and their shit going on. So, um, what I will give the the Funk Bros kind of you know their video um, the most credit for is that the two of them are very dynamic and very energetic about this issue and it is at least the exact opposite of what you know the tone of her article and many similar articles takes right where they actually have passion and energy for the yeah. community but that's what the fung bros or us for that matter will never be allowed to write for new york magazine because they they prefer the esther wangs and uh and the, and you know at, at best the only emotion you're allowed to feel is sadness because that, that's all i felt from this article this kind of resigned sadness um and and when I read her uh, interview with Henry, I like I, I try to uh, approach it, trying to ignore um, how angry he or his friends like Pix got, and you know, our friend also Pix got mm-hmm. about this. I'm like, okay, if I'm a truly, if I'm a non-Asian, didn't really know what's going on, I'm reading this. What would I think? I honestly thought the the interview with him was was perfectly fine, but it did treat him like this kind of weirdo who was like. He, he, it almost felt like he was some like survivalist in a mountain. Like, ah, oh, yeah, I, I got my, you know, uh, stack of beans, so I, I don't have to, you know, like in case food gets cut off, I got my my rifles, I got my like primitive radio in case the internet goes out. You know, it got that kind of feeling. Like, this person should be somebody you feel a connection with if you are purporting to represent the Asian American community. But obviously. The, the blue check class of Asian Americans don't feel that connection. Yeah, that's he, precisely the problem. She describes him as um, being, I think, autistic. Um, well, which, he is though. Which so. he no, he is. But she describes, and he points this out in his kind of like counter write up on on RAI is that he says that, like she mentions this for like no reason except for maybe you know to make him look like a weirdo, right? Like it doesn't yeah, but, come but- up in any other way. But in this type of audience where you know neurodivergency becomes like a plus one to your sympathy thing. I, I I think she kind of threw that in there to actually make him, okay, this guy might sound a little weird, but you know, he, he's autistic. So you gotta, you gotta like, so I think she was trying to do him a favor in her. I'm just saying that Henry didn't feel that way about it. Right, right. He, like, he wouldn't feel that way because he's not part of the whole like blue check mentality class. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just, that's kind of the writing that you get these days in, in places like New York Magazine, especially when they're talking about, race you know they're they're scared to say anything objective they're scared to say anything or they 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 just don't want they want to stay out of like taking a position so they're like why don't you just come in and just like tell us your subjective state of mind there's nothing controversial about, about saying how you feel yeah it's a feels article and i thought that she was you know fine it was like whatever it, it it's it's just you know a psychograph of someone living in new york city you know and uh that's fine. I mean, I, I didn't really have a problem with it. I don't think it's like groundbreaking or it didn't say anything like particularly, you know, for us anyway. But, you know, people right. who don't know anything about what, you know, what's going on with Asian people in New York. I mean, it might be interesting. It might be interesting to see because I thought the cover, at least, of the magazine was interesting. It was like this person with a taser and a gun. And I, I'm like, yeah, this is happening. Like, people are fucking scared. And yeah. that's that she was scared. And she and I thought the way it opened up with Christina Unali, like I really related to that. Cause that for whatever mm-hmm. reason, that was like the most horrifying of, of a lot of these for me personally, subjectively, I was like, there was something particularly evil about that one. And it, it seemed to fuck with her pretty bad too. Um, so yeah, I, 
you know, I, I, I it didn't, it, I, I thought it was fine. Speaking of the, um, the, like the cover art, what do you guys think of the art? Not just in, in like for the cover, but throughout the, uh, the series. That's pretty awful. Uh, well, let's start with the, the cover of the, the masked woman with the knife and the taser. Our friend Kyle, also known as Beef Hoagie on Twitter, he posted this uh, picture of the writer Esther Wang. And she was in this, um, some field, with, I, I, there's like a bridge in the background, her w- with a bunch of like these white people. And it looked like some like really bad cover art for some terrible indie band. And I thought it was such a stark contrast. Okay, so this is the writer and this is like her social circle versus the you know the paranoid asian uh and and you know just by looking at this cover you can tell that this asian uh american woman uh, with the mask and and all these things is supposed to be probably like lower class less assimilated probably lives in a place like uh i don't know chinatown or flushing or regal park you know somewhere the the less fashionable fashionable parts of new york city and it it was it's like you know there was such a condescension towards mm the the type of Asian American that that was being talked about and and a lot of people are uh, pissed off at the cover. It might come off as a little shallow because they, they you know like of all the things get upset about you're, you're upset about the picture. But I think what they were upset about is this obvious class divide between between the the class that the writers belong to versus the subjects that they write about. Who uh, you know as Henry you know he got interviewed but he also complained a lot about all the things that got taken were clipped out of what he said. I think. Uh, one of the things that he rightfully most complained about was he brought up the fact that a lot of people they work with are also fellow minorities, especially blacks and Latinos, but they kept that part out because the narrative is much more convenient if it's more about these weird, isolated Asians who just can't assimilate, can't just can't make friends with you, other... You know who that sounds like? That sounds like JCK. I mean, I think JCK <laughs> writes a lot of good articles where he... I, I mean, in the sense that he has good politics, and I think when he writes just about politics or you know something... Uh, he has like good takes. Like I think he has good takes. But then you, I think people get annoyed, and I get annoyed for the same reasons. Because it's like, yeah, there's there's this sort of like out, you know, there's this sort of uh, objective, this objective viewpoint that they're taking, where they're like, look, I, I'm I'm this objective, sort of mentally liberated Asian person. You know, I'm not like mm-hmm. you know one foot in the Chinatown or whatever these people are like, but. I don't hate them. I don't look down on them. And I will admit that a lot of my like, you know, colleagues in media, you know, look down on these people. I don't look down on them. I pity them. And so I'm going to write from a, you know, fundamental uh, position of like pitying and uh, feeling sorry for these people. Right. Because nothing could possibly be right in your life if you're like, you know, half, you know, you're, you're stuck in some immigrant ghetto. Uh, and I think that really pisses people off because I, you know, the people I know, it's kind of like. I like you, where I am. What do you mean? I am stuck here. I like where I live. You yeah. Know? So yeah, you there's know, this I, feeling of, uh, you poor sacks uh, that I left behind. Don't worry, I didn't forget about you. Even though I am now part of this uh, new, better crowd. Right. I moved on. Yeah, right. I moved on. But don't don't worry. You know, a big bro or big sis hasn't forgotten about you. Yeah. It's 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 just weird. But moving moving on for a sec, uh, there's another article which is actually the number one uh, most viewed story on New York, and of course, it's about food. And oh, the article one. is "The Asian Food Fixation: Why Does Identity Have to Revolve So Tightly Around What We Eat?" by Malika Rao, and uh, it's very short, and I think it's pretty good. I think it's a pretty good article. I haven't um, read it. Uh, Ray sent that to me. Mm-hmm. And- what do you think? 
I think he was a little like, okay, so she's, I didn't read it. So I, I'm depending completely on his summary for mm -hmm. it. But he said, okay, so she wants to swap out appreciation for food for apparently like Hindu mitts. Uh, so I, I don't know if that's an accurate um, kind of <laughs> uh, thing about his thing. Kind but, of. She she uh, didn't really say that, but I think that you know that it is. She basically said that um, it's a very short article. I don't think it's like great. I think it's pretty good in the sense that maybe maybe you know people are picking. Uh, we've been talking about this for a while, but she. I think this 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 part is what I liked. She questions the idea, um, or. Yeah, she questions the idea of this sort of like hyper identification with food, especially by Asian people. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the reasons she gives here is uh, the appeals of food are also shortcomings as a foundation uh, for identity. Food is a quick way to engage with culture. It's literally consumed. It, po it poses simpler challenges, perhaps, than learning a lost language or filling great gaps in historical knowledge. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the consumable nature of food allows it to be stolen by onlookers and outsiders. It's meaning cheapened and diluted. Uh, anyone, after all, can make a curry or a pork bun if they want to, or just buy one. So, you know, I, I, I feel like this is uh, a pretty decent uh, starting point to understand this, like, anger over, you know, white people. In fact, I think there's a part in here where she actually... Uh, mentions Alison Roman. Oh yeah, here. But Asian food has has crowded out Asian languages, arts, philosophies, and other cultural binding agents to become an object of jealous focus that often must be protected from Alison Romanesque Rom Roman? Alison Romanesque neocolonialists who dare use yogurt or fish sauce. So I, I think she and then e even here, and this is you know, I always find this flattering now when people use the term boba liberal, but offline quote, boba liberalism, to borrow a neat term for consumption-based Asian-American identitarianism, plays out via a reservation at some new it restaurant or a purchase of the right book. Boba liberalism, by the way, coined by one of our guests uh, on a podcast. Uh, I forget the number, but we do we do claim some sort of connection to the... Are we talking about Redmond? Yeah. Yeah. Where is he nowadays? I don't know. He... he, he he did the he quit Twitter and he, he did the quitter. Yeah, he did the quitter. <laughs> yeah, he's probably living about his best life right now. Hopefully, yeah. Uh, but anyway, yeah. I mean, it's probably worth a whole other episode. But yeah, it, it is true that you know culture gets shifted onto food because culture is dangerous. I mean, w when you're talking about like kind of this um, uh, American liberal ideology. It is a very jealous ideology. It doesn't want any competitors. It doesn't want genuine Asian culture. It doesn't want genuine uh, African culture or Black American culture or Latino American culture. So it neutralizes it by, uh, you know, just just focusing all on food. Um, but, you know, that, that's, a, that's a whole probably different episode if we probably have already talked about it many times. But, uh, yeah, that, that's, an, that's a good... Uh, that's a good article. Um, did you guys read the one by Andrea Long Chu about the... The, the hapa the mixed metaphor the the mixed metaphor yeah yeah I, I read I read that whole one it's a lot yeah. it's a longer one I think um, I I thought so I didn't read the Asian food fixation but the snippet that you shared teen is very interesting and I think it's it's uh, it, it has it, it it gave me this kind of same like meta reaction I had to the mixed metaphor which is oh these two articles are actually like looking at new shit in Asian America 
right? I think so. Yeah. I mean, we've talked about this specific thing in very similar terms, you know, about how people overload the meaning of food, how food is a commodity and we mistake commodity for culture, how mm -hmm. because it's commodified, we suddenly have to or worry that it can be stolen from us, you know, and, and that is the, you know, the, the, the sort of like hypersensitivity to quote cultural appropriation. And I, we've talked about all this stuff and I think it's really well, you know, in just a few short paragraphs, I mean, this is a very short article. I thought she did a really good job of uh, not going all the way with it, but at least opening the door and, and being like, you know, and and actually, I mean, we could. I, I don't. Maybe that's a bit of a tangent, but like, if you there, I've seen like, you know, there's a comedian. He's on Netflix. Uh, he has Netflix specials out named Sebastian Maniscalco. He's like a. Mm -hmm. His parents are Italian immigrants, and there's a whole thing that he did in his special where he talks about having, um, the Italian kid immigrant kids lunch. Mm -hmm. He was like, I had. He's like, I had to get permission to put my lunch in the teacher's lounge because it would spoil. And he was like, you know, I had real silverware and my mom would be like, Hey, dunk your dunk the cookies in the coffee. And he's like, I'm in third grade. They don't have coffee. And she's like, I'll make you coffee. And no one wanted to trade with them or whatever. It's his, it's his stinky lunch story, right? Like, it's it's, same, but it was very interesting because he as an Italian, I mean, it's very different, you know, but like, yeah, yeah. than being the one Asian kid in your school, but he did approach it in a way. It is a stinky lunch story, but it didn't have it was funny and there was no real like fixation on the shame and embarrassment of it uh -huh. it was more just like it was funny you know it wasn't <laughs> like this traumatic thing for him and i don't know how traumatic how real those stinky lunch stories are i mean sure. I, maybe they are but i i I've, i wonder sometimes if like they're being backfilled with meaning because, you know, just mm -hmm. like it probably wasn't as funny as Maniscalco describes it, it's, it's he's backfilling it with humor. He's like looking back on it and saying, hey, that's actually a really funny story. I could write a, a, a really good joke around it. And I think a lot of I wonder if a lot of Asian writers look back and say, you know, that's pretty sad. I could write a really sad sack story about it because that's what they want from us. Right, know? right. There, so. There's only so there's only two subgenres. Well, sub subgenres of the subgenre of Asian food articles, right? It's either. The stinky lunch story and how I made you feel sad, or you know, or or like an outsider, and then there's the cultural appropriation um, article. Like those are the two categories we get. And so I think what's interesting about this article, again, I haven't read it. I will read it because you. It sounds pretty interesting. Is that it actually tries to go beyond those two subgenres and tries to do something new. Um, in the same way that I thought the mixed metaphor article tried to do something new, where it talked about this kind of new emerging area of uh, Asian American literature, right around Hapa's. Uh, which was which was well described. Though so, let's be uh, clear, new for them. We've been talking about this stuff, and people uh, online have been talking about this stuff. Yeah, yeah new for a N Y man. Yeah, give credit yeah. where it's credit due. Uh, New York <laughs> magazine. But before we go on to that piece, I, I want to mention like because Liza is always talking about. Um, she, she's always interested in kind of like children's books and you know middle grade and even YA books because you know she has kids and everything. So she, you know she she brought up like this latest children's book about. The, the Asian lunch story. And it brought mm -hmm. uh, me to, because uh, when I was a little kid and I was in elementary school, I remember reading a story called Vincenzo's Lunch. And it was about an Italian Canadian kid, I guess. And his whole dilemma was he had this, a sandwich, which had like mortadella, probably like provolone and all this, you know, all this like delicious stuff in it. But everyone else had like peanut butter and jam. So, yeah, but you know, he, 
Yeah, he, he had the gabagool, and and the kids didn't appreciate it. So he was really ashamed until later on he he shared it with them, and they all realized how delicious it was. And guess what? Yeah. That was written and published nineteen like seventy five. So this story is just like multiple decades old and even in in 2022 like asian americans think it's some like cutting edge story so i just wanted to share that story because i was mm-hmm. like that story when i was growing up because like hey you know this this kid he he um he like fights through uh, peer pressure but anyway okay so uh the mixed metaphor andrea long chu who uh you know j- just for background info i didn't even realize she was asian she looks very white i think she's her father is apparently half asian i, I guess that's how she has the last name chu She's also a trans woman, I believe. I mean, just for some background info, I, I kind of knew of her. I've, I don't really haven't read a lot of things by her, but she's like a fairly well-established name. So she writes this uh, long piece. Um, I really like kind of like the first third of it, which she really calls into question. She focuses mainly on Celeste Ng, who has a new novel coming out, and J. Caspian Kang, because uh, Celeste Ng in her new novel writes uh, about this Hapa son. Uh, and and Jake has been king in the loneliest Americans talks about his hapa daughter, and I think she scrutinizes, hey, why why are these full Asian writers uh, using these mixed Asian uh, character? I I think she calls them out for kind of turning them into symbols of their own like racial neuroses or aspirations. And then towards the end, I kind of lost the handle on what she was trying to say, but I I thought it was interesting that she was, you know, critical of, of someone like Celeste Ng, which, you know, you, you wouldn't think like a New York magazine would do, but I thought she was, uh, you know, she was willing to be like, hey, you're, you're kind of clumsy with the way you handle these, especially since you have mixed race Asians like myself who can write about our own experiences and don't need you to use us as your own like vehicle for whatever. So what what did you guys think? Uh, I, I I saw a bit of that critique. I, I did appreciate that critique. I think it was just, for me, it was just like a kind of a nice um, survey of what's out there for like HAPA stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think for people who are craving that, it's a nice way to kind of get, get into it. Uh, she does go into some kind of like concepts that are explored there, right? It's like common themes that show up, like, um, you know, feeling like this weird empty void around your identity, you know, being between two spaces, all that kind of usual bullshit, right? Um, but for me, it was just a survey. It was just like, here's some interesting th- things to check out. I'd be, I'd be curious to see, you know, to look into some of them, uh, myself now. So that, that was what it was for me, but it was just, it was just different. Like I haven't seen anything like this before, like calling out this particular subgenre, which I, I'm, you know, has been around for a little bit. Um, but for them to make room for it was, uh, was nice. Yeah. Uh, I actually, uh, team, what'd you think? I, I thought I didn't, I've been, I'm, I'm kind of. I, I read the very, very beginning and then now I'm kind of reading through it as you guys talk. And I feel like I remember JCK got really pissed about this. He he had retweeted something that involved this article and said, mm-hmm. like, it seems like people are intentionally misreading what I'm saying and, mm-hmm. and then didn't. But, you know, I'm reading what she says about his book, uh, The Loneliest Americans, and I kind of feel like she's got his number. Because a lot of people I know that were discussing the book were talking about this, including some friends who are Hoppa themselves. And um, it says, she says, early in The Loneliest Americans, uh, Kang clarifies the title. Uh, actually, Kang so ardent believes in a, ardently believes in a universal desire to be white among so-called Asian Americans that he reflexively dismisses every indication to the contrary, a taste for tapioca pearls, support for ethnic studies programs, as little more than yellow face. 
Eating at an Asian food court in Berkeley, Kang cannot conceive of why a nearby group of Asian undergrads would choose to sit together. Quote, their insularity feels banal and unwarranted, he complains. If you're just going to speak English, dress like everyone else, and complain about schoolwork like every other Berkeley student, what exactly is the culture you've created? So uh, we're, you know, I, I thought that that was a really good uh, sort of like kind of kind of peeling away of what's really going on in this book. And uh, it's a sad irony. And she writes, it is a sad irony of the loneliest Americans, for instance, that it will, that it never occurs to King to ask whether his own half white daughter might one day want to be Asian. Uh and I and I thought that a lot of people I talked to were exactly and I and I noticed this too, was that he was universalizing this this thing about how Asians like just want to turn into white people and he's kind of like stop lying to yourself that's what you want, and I feel like in a way I relate to what he's saying but he's universalizing it whereas I'm like no just point it directly at the people you really mean which is like all the people that you count as colleagues and peers. Right. You know, stop re- universalizing it. I, to, I remember to that. It's a very small, you know, group that's like this. Stop it. I remember that scene that she quotes him from. That's the one where he's like at some restaurant and there's like some like 1.5 or one gen, like Asian kids who mm-hmm. are just like enjoying themselves. Right. And it makes yeah. him feel self-conscious. It makes uh, him feel self-conscious. And he literally, and he says, why would you, he's like, if you're just, if you're going to speak English, dress like everyone else and complain about schoolwork like every other student, what is the culture you've created? As if like a bunch of Asian kids hanging around each other, they're they're in the process of creating a culture. I, I think it's him. It's it's JCK who's trying to create a culture by writing a book, you know, trying to essentialize what it means to be Asian American. No, those kids are just having lunch. It's JCK who's trying to build a culture. So what the fuck is he talking about here? And I so I think True's uh, got his number, you know. No, and I think what, if, if it bugs him because she's like more white than he is, and it it fucking bugs him because she's got his number. She's yeah. willing oh. to call him out even though he's an Asian boy. Yeah, but when True says, "Oh, what what if his daughter wants to be Asian?" Well, the, I, I think that presents probably one of his the things he's he's kind of like anxious about. Okay, so if his daughter, let, let's say she, let, let's say she doesn't look completely white but she doesn't also look completely asian um then she kind of has the best of both worlds in that she is no longer like a pure chink but now she has the freedom to to look like say like an eileen goo uh but now she gets to um uh take the baton of of asianness and it becomes like the the representative of, of asianness so it's like that's that's her privilege of being able to choose as as like a half white half Asian to then be like, okay, this is what I, what I want to choose to be, and then people will gladly, even other full Asians will gladly uh, appoint me as the representative Asian because I am like the best of both worlds in that I am not actually fully Asian. Yeah, it, this this is JC. He's just really hung up on this shit, and that's why he has this like really kind of smarmy little like persona going on on Twitter. You know, he's he's got all these defense mechanisms up and he's always like, you know, just kind of bitching at people. And it's kind of funny sometimes because he yells at people that I don't like. And I think that's funny. But <laughs> like, honestly, though, like it, 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 she's got she's basically saying that, dude, you're stuck in this belief that Asian people, unless they're real Asians, 
Okay, just just hang it up and and just acknowledge that Asian identity in America means nothing. It's pathetic. You're hanging on to nothing. You're 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 speaking English anyway. Like who the fuck do you think you are? Like just you know. And I'm like, dude, this is all shit that you went through growing up in North Carolina or whatever it was, and and you know all the ways that you've learned to deflect you know marginalization and racism and all that stuff. And he just is so arrogant about it or so dense that he can't see that, you know, other people just don't have these experiences growing up. We didn't think of it as the Asian ghetto, not all of us anyway. And he, it just, it, it just seeps through. And I know this, we're supposed to be talking about this article, but I'm saying like, you know, a lot of this had to do with like a full, uh, like a full on uh, like rebuttal or, or, or some takedown of Kang's book. And I and I totally agree with her. And, you know, I'm like, is it because she had the free, you know, in a way, is it because she didn't grow up with all these like racial hangups and yet she considers herself Asian? You know, like, is she saying like, look, your daughter could be like me. She could be totally white. I know you're upset that she's not, but she could be totally white passing and still decide that she wants to be Asian. Have you thought about that? You know? If you take both, well, see, her I, I don't think that works uh, though, because I've read criticisms that Andrea Long Chu's real uh, concern here is about transgenderism. Like she doesn't look Asian. Um, I don't really know her backstory, but it could very well be possible that she didn't even really identify as Asian until quite recently. So her uh, personal interest in the uh, you know fine. the the mutability of identity is in gender. So that's, that's fine, okay. But I'm just saying, like on the face of what she wrote. I agree because I side more with what she – I don't know much about her and I don't really care. But I'm saying like what she wrote here is very much along the lines of how I feel about what he wrote, which is like the the the, the perception of being Asian and identifying yourself as Asian in America to me is far from inherently pathetic. And it's sad to me that people like JCK are relied upon so heavily to relate – these experience, you know, this, this quote, racial experience to people where it's like, yeah, we hate it. And, or Kathy Park Hong, urinal cakes of shame. I mean, I can't, you know, and, and, and Gia Tolentino going, man, like talk about brave. I'm like, I, I never, I have who, no what, idea what the fuck what? you're talking about. Who said brave what? Gia Tolentino and reviewing Kathy Park Hong's book, Minor feelings said it was so brave that she came out. Yo, and said I shared it. that post in uh, the Asian American subreddit, right? I, I, I think uh, one of the pieces in this whole like New York Magazine Asian American Week was this glowing portrait of Kathy Park Hong posted on Asian American uh, the subreddit, oh, yeah. you know, which is a gung ho about Asian <laughs> yeah. uh, media rep and everything. Zero, zero upvotes, zero replies. Nobody gives a shit. Okay, no, she's a, she's a, she's writes for white people. Let's face it, and wow. Kang writes for white people. They are write for white people. That's how I will say is. though, JCK is better than, than Kathy Park Hong though. Yeah, but they have the same basic attitude, mm-hmm. you know. And I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm not saying that they're wrong for having this attitude. I'm just saying it is a reflection of how they grew up or their personal experiences. They have real shame in 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 the game, right? They're ashamed of being Asian. They're working through that shame, you know. They're 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 in a some sort of twelve step program that involves <laughs> journaling to get over this shame. <laughs> I mean, you know, it, it's like the, you know, in, in a way, I feel like they're not that different than like a Wes Yang where he looks in the mirror and he's like, I don't even understand what I am, you know? And it's like, okay, 
I get it. I understand that that's a thing for some Asian people, but like everyone writing about it professionally is taking this this same it's they're all having the same fucking attitude and 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 approach to this, which is like it's basically like Asian being Asian is like a some kind of some kind of chronic disease. Yeah. You know that they're trying to get comfortable with and accept. And I'm like, maybe it's because you're so fucking alienated from other Asian people or your own culture that, you know, you think that anyone else that is different from because and it's, it's coupled with an arrogance that I think is a result of being defense, hyper defensive about this is that any other Asian people who don't have these hangups, who are comf- more, much more like naturally comfortable with being Asian and and having retaining those connections to their culture. He looks at that as fundamentally pathetic because they haven't advanced through all the steps that he has to overcome the shame that he has projected into them and is convinced is there and must be dealt with. And that's why he's so fucking irritating. <laughs> and I can't stand talking to the guy, do, do even you think though I think he's what, a good writer. Do you think that that's what Andrea Long Chu is criticizing? Like that and, and yeah. Celeste Singh's, um, you know, or, or is she just saying like, let Hapa speak for themselves? And went on this tirade against them because it was a, a obvious flaw in their in their books. Yeah, and Malika Rao's complimentary art, is, article is kind of complimentary to this, right? Because she's saying, like, look, look at yourselves. You you guys, like, there is this weird, like, like there is a real complex when it comes to Asian Americans and Asian culture, Asian mm. Americans and other Asians, right? She's like, you guys have like a fucking complex about it. And there's a, you know, she's analyzing it. She's saying there's a reason for this. And I agree. And I think the fact that Kang can't even stay, you know, JCK can't even, can't even really grapple with the idea that Asian people, a bunch of Asian guys just want to choose to have lunch together. He's like, stop lying to yourselves. And I'm like, what are you talking about? You know, he can't fathom that there's like white, like that's such a white thing to see a bunch of Asian people together and feel upset about it. That's like Shane Gillis when he's like, oh, yeah, I go to Chinatown and I'm like, what are these people doing? What are you all doing around here? What do you get out of here? You know, it's like, where does this fucking attitude come from? Where when you see a bunch of Asian people together, you immediately think like, what's wrong with these people? Why are they doing this? Why wouldn't you just want to intersperse yourself amongst white people like I do? I'd be curious to dig up the uh, the age of uh, the authors Chu and Rao, and like, I'm kind of curious if it's a generational thing. I think they're um, younger. I assume they're younger. Malika Rao looks a bit younger. Um, I I've actually met with her uh, a few years ago because I, I reached Rao? out to her because she she wrote a piece, uh, I forget where, but she she was like criticizing a depiction of um Indian Americans on in the media, and uh, it it felt like similar things that. You should uh, I wrote this podcast. I think she's like a few years older. Um, I mean, she might be in her in her late thirties, but definitely within kind of like millennial generation. Andrea Longchu, I don't know her age. I would probably assume kind of in the, in the similar uh, a range. So, yeah, they're they're kind of they're kind of in the same mindset. Yeah. Yeah, J- JCK is definitely of an older mindset that's going obsolete. And well, I think JCK, a lot. JCK, Kathy Parkong, Celeste Ng, I, th- mm-hmm. I think they're, yeah. I mean, I think they're kind of. Yeah, aging out. Uh, they're aging out. Yeah, and, and it's just, I, I don't know how, how old like Esther Wang is, but I, I think the, the fundamental problem is not really with necessarily the content that they write, because it's like if, 
if let's say someone, it's just, we don't fucking trust you. That's, that's the main issue. Like every, we look at your life um, and just your attitude, every chance you had uh, where it, you had to side with Asians or somebody else. And it was really tough. You always took the other side. And that's kind of what they're doing now where, uh, you know, all these Asians are getting attacked, even from their very specific narrow demographic. Let's say like Esther Wang, she's like uh, a straight young, youngish Asian American woman. And with like a, a Michelle Goh or Christina Yuna Lee, they're both of her demographic. And even then she's like, yeah, but you know, I, I feel bad carrying around pepper spray. It feels like I'm being paranoid. And it's just, when, when you say that, it's just like, how can we fucking trust you? We don't. And you can, it's not necessarily about what you say. Cause Hey, we all have mixed feelings. So I don't, I'm no expert on policing or, 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 you know, criminal reform or anything. I'll, I'll defer to people who've spent their lives studying these issues, but at a gut level, I can kind of tell which Asians are willing to, to kind of risk their reputations on, uh, erring on the side of being too defensive of their own community versus erring on the other side. And all these writers, they always err on the other side of being less protective of their own community while purporting to def- to be representatives. And that's what ultimately pisses all of us off. So yeah, it's kind of true. If she's willing to like gaslight herself by saying that she's paranoid for picking up self-defense weapons during a time when there's like a huge uptick in violence against Asian women, how could you trust her to speak for the community at all, right? If she can't even defend herself. Yeah. Yeah, though, I, I would say, you know, for our listeners, because I think, like, you know, take a different tack here, but, like, you know, I, I, I do think, like, I mean, for this is where I'm at, is, like, I read something like Seth Berkman's article where he was just straight out attacking Asian-American activists and or mm-hmm. basically, like, anyone who was taking this seriously, and saying like this is all 100% astroturfing from right wingers who just want to like leverage Asian anger to support anti-black policing policies and right. stuff like that, or virtue signaling from the left. Yeah, like he's being operational. He's being politically operational, meaning like he is trying to advance a, a political argument and moving that. He's literally trying to move the ball, and I find that detestable because I think he's lying, and I think he's actually the one that's motivated by politics. Mm-hmm. Not the people who are not the people like Henry, right? I don't think Henry gives a shit about Republican or Democrat, but I think Berkman is ma- trying to make himself as useful as possible for Democrats to further his own career. Okay, but that that I get angry about. But for Esther Wang, I mean, I I've read that more as like this is how I think. This is like just me as a regular person, a regular Asian, a youngish Asian American woman in New York City. This is what's going on in my head. And the gaslighting part, you know, this when you say like this refusal to stand up for whatever. Yes, she's refusing to. But on the one hand, I read it more as I don't think she I think she's being honest. I don't think she's trying to advance a political agenda. I think she's just being like, this is my fucked up head. This is where my fucked up head is. And that's yeah. I mean, that's a lot of, you know, young urban Asian people uh you know halfway assimilated or more is that you do gaslight yourself part of that process is gaslighting yourself and she's not really taking a hard stance against it because maybe she's mired in it whereas i think like on this pod we have taken a harder stance against it to be like look if you want that voice out of your head you've got to commit 
You've got to make up some choices. You can't just constantly defer to being Asian American as this, you know, quote, interstitial identity that is constantly being pulled apart and questioning its own, you know, coherence. But that's who she is. And and so I think in a way it's almost useful if you were to read it not as like, is this person leading me and representing me, but more like, is this person being honest? I think and I as, long as, as, as yeah, Philip said, there's an opportunity cause. And by virtue yes. of being on the fucking cover of New York Magazine and being the lead off story, you are leading. Like this is not some personal blog on her LinkedIn or oh, but Facebook. it is though. I mean, that's the kind she, I mean, that, of shit that, that the, they're doing now, you but, know? But now they're putting it in here and it's just as we said, it's fucking boring. And it is boring. It, it is, is boring. boring. And I don't like you, you you're gonna like uh, go on this like rumination on what your identity is. Do that in your own time. Write that in your journal, like figure it out, and then when you have like something interesting to say for once. Then come out with it, but Fair. stop wasting our time and taking up valuable space. No, Look, I also want to say I agree. Thank, uh, thank you for <laughs> knowing what my uh, bored to death reference was in the Discord. Because I honestly think if George Christopher running a New York magazine right now, <laughs> even then, better shit would be coming out than whoever is running uh, this thing. And you know, people are going to blame like white editors. I have a sneaky suspicion that it was probably a minority editor who who uh, commissioned all this shit because it's like. You know, nobody does minority shit worse than other minorities, right? No, I, Chris, I, I totally agree. I find it boring too, and it is an opportunity cost. But uh, I'm just saying that this is this is probably where we're at as a as a as a demographic. That this this is really how they think. Like Berkman, I think is being dishonest. You know, like I, mm-hmm. I think he's like lying and he's like <laughs> he's think you know, he's 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 scheming. You know, whereas I think this is like the real deal. Like this is Esther Wang is you know, that's the state of Asia like a lot of you know of her of her ilk. You know, that's really who they are, <laughs> you know, and it's and I, and to be honest, I think I'll, I relate to it. It's not like I don't understand what she's saying or going through it. And I'm sure a lot of people that listen to this pod, really, at, at some level, you get that there is a voice inside of you that constantly gaslights you. Yeah, you know that that never lets you fully just go. You know what? Fuck it. Like I'm, I am going to ad- be my own best advocate. It's this constant feeling of like, no, I've got to sacrifice. I've got to think about more than just myself. And you know, of course, it's always has to do with why you being an Asian doesn't confer on you any, it, it almost takes away your sort of standing. You know, you, you being Asian is like, I have to sacrifice myself. Yeah. On that, on that point, I do want to honestly ask these people if seeing not only people of your race, but your, of your own very narrow demographic, like for like an Esther Wang, uh, you know, like probably like a 30 something, Asian American woman, uh, second generation, lives in New York City. Yeah, uh, you know, college educated, all that. If her brutal murder doesn't fire you up, what the fuck does? I well, that, honestly want to know what is your that, driving passion that, in life. That is it. They, it, it sh- I think that is a measure of how little. It's not just a measure of how little they regard other Asian people while holding themselves up as the best. Uh, you know, this is what Asian should be. I think it is self-loathing. And so they don't really, doesn't really hit them. You know, didn't you say like, you talk to a lot of Asian 
female New Yorkers after her murder. And a lot of them were like, yeah, I just don't really want to think about it. Or Wait, I said that? Yeah. When we talked, I um... think when we talked about it on a pod, you said you had brought it up with some people and they were kind of like... No, I mean, really... I most maybe maybe I read about it in in like Reddit or some articles, but I, okay. I definitely, I mean, the people we know would have gotten very fired up. I, so I would I, say honestly that like that for for a certain for for that group, you know, like more uh, sort of assimilated and quote multicultural, and you know, not just hanging out with other Asian people and stuck in the Asian ghetto or whatever you want to call it, that they don't. You know, it's just kind of like how they don't want to gravitate towards the all Asian table at at the Berkeley dining hall. <laughs> they don't want to gravitate with particular, you know, urgency towards an Asian victim. And the more that Asian victim is just like you, the sort of more repulsive it is in the sense of a positive on positive charge. You know, like like yeah. like repels like right and. Uh- Although I will so, say, when when the stars align, like in the Atlanta spa murders, they will go gung ho for that. Because I remember, uh, you know, remember like before that, uh, especially in places like NBC, but, but Asian in a America, but in a very I, white liberal way. But yeah, well, like in NBC Asian America, it's like these aren't hate crimes. These are their whole stance was these are just kind of like a random uh, everyday crimes that just happen to unfortunately fall upon Asian Americans because they just happen to be around in these neighborhoods. Then Atlanta happens, and I remember this article, uh, this headline from LA Times was like saying, uh, even if it's not a hate crime, racism was obviously the motive. And they went all out on that. Uh, but then afterwards, uh, because kind of like basically uh, the demographics of the attackers weren't right, and it would cause them too many uh, social conflicts. Then now we're seeing the the reversion to the pre-Atlanta mindset, which was, you know what? These aren't really hate crimes. Calling them hate crimes is actually racist. Let's just kind of uh, memory hole all this because it's very uh, disturbing for me. I think that's I think that's an important part of the reaction to this, right? I, I'm not sure if I agree. It's self-loathing. I think it's either in, indifference because we're just, you know, taught to be completely uninterested in ourselves as as Asians, or it's fear of being called anti-black or racist or whatever, right? For speaking up about it. No, I, I don't think that it's that. I don't think it's fear of being anti-black. You know, I think that. Um, I, I really do think that, well, like with Atlanta, I think that there was more of, uh, a willingness to jump on it because one, because the, the, the demo, you know, the killer was white It happened in the South. And then the women were like sex immigrants and spa workers, which everyone kind of wink, winked and, and was like, this might be like a, you know, like a like a sex worker brothel type situation. Who knows? I don't think that ever was stated, but a lot of people made that assumption. And so there was an immediately, like there was an immediate distance between the type of Asian woman that would write about it and the type of Asian woman that got killed. It wasn't them. It was a lower cast of Asian woman. And so there was a, you know, this sort of, saviorism that that they could in that that they could indulge by writing about it and you saw that in the berkman article too that said i thought we were supposed to be protecting poor migrant people 
No, I don't think that that's what it was. I think we're supposed to be just like trying to protect all people from getting murdered because on account of their race. But you see, they like to shift it towards I'm actually a class warrior. I actually care about them because they're lower than me. And I'm a magnanimous upper class person. You know, like that's what gets them fired up about that. Not any real sense of, uh, you know, like real empathy to these people. Okay. They're, but when they're the same class, like Christina, you, you know, yeah, Lee then, or, they, uh, then, they're just, then it's just like, I don't think, I think they're, I think they kind of want to run away and avoid it to an extent. No, no, but, but even before Atlanta, all the victims were also kind of like poorer, uh, Asian Americans. The, the, um, uh, I forget yeah, but name. the problem oh. there, you're right, is that there was the, the attackers were not white. That was the main problem. There were a lot of them were black. I think that's essentially the, yeah. the main issue. Yeah, and it was here. taking place in New York, right? So like, you don't want to fuck or, with New York politics. Um, what, what? What? He recently had a street named after him. Whoa! Whoop de do Problem solved. Uh, the, I think he was Indonesian or something. Um, I think that was in the in the Bay Area, but uh, some of that was happening. The, those were like poor Asians who were getting getting killed. Um, I, I think it mainly has to do with the demographic of the attacker and how that complicates their own standing in their own. No, it, that's true. No, that might that plays into it. But I think that I don't. I what I'm saying is that you're right. If they had real, I think that if they had real sympathy going on, it would have showed itself when women just like them were getting killed. Mm-hmm. And even then, it wasn't enough. And I think I have to. I have to think that I don't. I don't think we can be. You know, it, I don't think we can be certain here. But I do think that there definitely is some sort of self-loathing going on, where that doesn't fire you up enough to just forget all that shit. Oh yeah, for sure. I, I that's think, my point. I think the death of a uh, Michelle Gore, Christina Lee probably had more impact on them than um like like there was that horrible story about the the uh the the grandmother who had who had the rock thrown at her and then she she had went yeah. in a coma for several weeks yeah I'm, I'm sure reading about like the the younger asian women who were killed had a more visceral effect but in the in the cost benefit analysis it still was not worth risking all the prog- social progress they had made into um becoming part of these uh, white elite progressive circles. I mean, that's just a very that. straightforward critique of Esther Wang's, you know, headline article, right? Like this fucking terrible thing happened to this woman, and this is the best you can come up with. Yeah, it's like what would it take? I I, I could envision these people like being slashed in the throat and they're dying, and they're like, oh, you know, you know, please don't turn my death into a, you know, pro Asian, like you know, disgusting little pro Asian. Uh, March, you know, something like that. It's just, it, it is this, yeah, it is an incredible amount of just just feeling like they constantly have to subjugate themselves uh, before every other interest, except for maybe other Asians, which is why they, they go gung-ho against other Asian Americans, which, you know, to, to Esther's credit, she didn't, I don't think she went, she, she, I think she could have done a lot worse with the Dragon Combat people. Uh, but I thought, you know, she did actually interview them. Um, I don't, obviously, I don't know what Henry said in all his interviews. There, there were, if he's upset about certain things that were cut out from his interview, he's fully um, justified in feeling that. But as I said, should have read this as neutrally as possible. Like, okay, I don't know what's going on. I'm not that invested. Uh, from that mindset, I thought he seemed like 
someone who's trying to do something good. So, mm-hmm. uh, Henry, if you're listening, um, that that's you know re- maybe you can take some comfort in that that you don't come off like a complete sociopath or whatever. Why don't we talk about that one article where not this class of media Asians actually got to write for NY Mag, which is the um, domestic workers article. Do you guys read that one? Um, no, I mean I I saw it, um, but it was about uh, um a, a bunch of like. Yeah, like domestic workers, nannies uh, from all sorts of countries, from like Indonesia to China to the Philippines, right? Who are working for mm-hmm. wealthier Asian Americans in New York City. Yeah, that one was interesting. I, I thought it was um, pretty. I think Tin, you described one of them as being pretty based because she was like, "Man, my my you know my yeah. my um, Chinese American." Uh, yeah, they have a vested interest in saying that things. Here are like China's much worse than this place, and you should be thankful to be here. And she was like, "Yeah, fuck that." Yeah, they sent her like a photo of like she basically beat up. she basically recreated whole whole cloth that sort of like thankful immigrant weaponized immigrant idea. Yeah, she was like, "Why do you insist on saying that this place is good because it's better than China when it's not even the true?" Wait, who said that? One of the women that I guess was interviewed in that. Oh, like one of the nannies or yeah. something? She was like, there, like she was working for a Chinese-American household. And the the her employers kept telling, kept insisting about how, you know, because she was complaining about stuff and, and you know, the, the pay or the conditions or whatever. And they kept insisting that, well, it's better than it would be in China. Mm-hmm. And she was like, well, you shut the fuck up about this. And they were like, <laughs> well, it's true. I mean, why did you come here? <laughs> And she was like, and she quit. She was like, fuck these people. And I'm like, yep, you're dealing with, you are dealing with, I mean, it's just, it's it's a similar theme in all of these articles. And I think that there is, it is right. I think the, I think the mega theme here is really about assimilation and what you're assimilating to, what that even means. Uh, and I think that the there, you know, if anything can be gleaned from this, it's that you've got to really question the this this assumption that assimilation is desirable and that there's no alternative to it. I think you've really got to question that stuff and uh and and you know the more we see these Asian you know clearly the more you assimilate the more you get to write in New York magazine or New Yorker or, or publish mm-hmm. a book and you see the results. You see the results of this sort of like this in a you know this just sort of like insanely neurotic, uh, extremely confused and in denial kind of personality that comes through. And part of you is just like, why won't you just admit that you just want to be white and you're upset that you're not? Why can't you just say that? Because everything you're saying is just like a very circular way of saying that, you know, <laughs> it's just like the tragedy of not being white. That's assimilation. As far as I can see in a lot of this stuff, you know, anyway. Uh, that's why I thought this, this uh, article here was interesting, right? Cause it actually, I mean, it starts off with the, the author, um, area sooner. I'm kind of doing a little intro and then it's, it's all just like, I guess maybe translated or verbatim, um, you know, exchanges or, or kind of like um, write-ups from the actual nannies themselves. But after reading through all of them, I actually kind of found I was a little bit disturbed by it because um, there's actually like two or three of them that are 
as, as you would describe a team, like kind of base, like they kind of like talk shit about their shitty host family. Um, but then if you look at all of them together, there's, it, it kind of paints this picture of like Asian American or Asian in America, most of them Chinese families too, right? The richer ones who are the, the hosts who have the nanny, them being like shitty people because they're wealthier, right? Like being like out of touch with um, the working class and so on. Um, so I thought that was interesting. Like I thought that despite, you know, providing this kind of like um, immediate, much more immediate, much more like um, authentic look at what working class Asians were doing, they still managed to make it like an Asian versus Asian thing um, throughout the entire piece. So I don't know if you found that, but I do, I do suggest folks read it because I think that did come out a little bit for me. Yeah, I got to read through it. I mean, I, 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 that one I haven't read. Um, I, I was just scrolling through Twitter. Apparently, I, I mean, who knows what? Remember when uh, there's uh, a supposedly a coup in China uh, last week? <laughs> 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 no idea what to believe on Twitter, but apparently uh, Coinbase users unable to make payments or withdraw funds using U.S. banks. Uh, Bloomberg reports, apparently. And I, I just saw it because... One of our, uh, you know, mutual Twitter followers said, "I wish, uh, teen." He said, "I wish you were still around because you have expertise in corporate securities." Yeah, just get that. your money out of Coinbase. <laughs> like, just don't put your money there. It's I'm not kidding. safe. Period. It, how's Credit Suisse doing? I saw, I saw tweets about how they were going under la- last night. Is that real? Is is that just? Uh... I, I don't know. I, I, I honestly don't think any of this shit matters. I think what matters is the fact that it sounds like we're going to fucking World War Three. Is it me? Am I being alarmist here or is this shit like getting worse by the week? Like not not even gradually, like it just gets insanely worse. Like there's literally like articles now in mainstream news outlets that are like, okay, what would the implications be if a nuclear weapon went off in Ukraine? (laughs) You know, and like, (laughs) and like high officials are answering questions about this. Like, like uh, Petraeus, I guess he's a former high official. Wait, that guy's still around? I thought he was uh, disgraced and forced into. No, no, he's he's still around. He's he's uh, he he resigned, but his his uh, his legendary soldier status remains. You know, um, but Petraeus recently said, like he was he was in the he was in the news, and he was just like, yeah, if a nuclear bomb goes off in Ukraine, we are going to destroy every single regiment of the Russian military. And that's a promise. And I'm like, what the fuck? What are we talking about here? How are we even talking about this? How are we threatening Russia? Like how is Russia threatening us with with, threatening with nuclear weapons? And how are we responding? Is it me or is this getting out of hand? At what point do we as people start thinking, wait, is this going to result in fucking nuclear war? What are you talking about? It's the, to- the tone bizarre. sounds almost like they're they're willing it to happen, like they want it to happen. There, there. Someone I was I was uh, someone I think it was like David Sachs or someone, um, on a podcast on his podcast was talking about how there's a book called Sleepwalking into War or something like that. And it's about mm-hmm. how World War One, like nobody wanted that war, but then because of this like inter-Balkan beef that nobody really, you know, like it, it shouldn't have mattered, but somehow. 
the great powers got drawn into it and they just wouldn't stop. They wouldn't put the brakes on. They kept talking bigger and bigger and bigger. And nobody believed that it would turn into World War One. And then it turned into World War One and nobody wanted it, but it happened anyway. And he was and his, his the question that he asked was, is this happening again? And if you follow the fucking news, it really sounds like how did we get from there to here? You know what I mean? Like, what the fuck is going on? Uh it's just insane. And then some of the like, I don't know, like the there, there's there's like no questioning in the media about this. The media is always just every time I watch like broadcast news or anything else that's highly influential about public uh, towards public perception. None of the journalists are asking tough questions to the Biden administration or anybody else about whether this policy of like unbridled support for Ukraine in the, in terms of weapons and, and whatever. And this like hardline rejection of any settlement talks with Russia and constant reporting on the idea of Russians committing atrocities and total denial of anything happening the other way. This is all one-sided and unprovoked. No journalist with any amount of mass public, uh, uh, exposure and influence is questioning this. And I'm like, this can't be good. I, there's no question. Like it's, this is like, just like Iraq, but like way worse because Iraq, it's like, we're invading this shit, this like, you know, this country, country with a shitty military. It's, you know, obviously a weak country punching way down. Now we're doing the exact same thing, but with Russia, which has like more ICBMs than we do. And we're just like, yeah, like our former generals are just like, yeah, we're just going to destroy every single regiment of the Russian army. What? How, what is going on? I don't know. I find this terrifying, guys. I, it's, it's fucking frightening. I mean, there's no questioning of this at all. Am I alone here? <laughs> I, I guess most people aren't freaked out about this because they're not. Like they don't see the question, they don't see any kind of like pushback on this at all. So they're just like, "Yep, this is we're just doing the right thing here." They they, they think Russia's just gonna this is just gonna be over one day, and then they, what? They 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 they're they're throwing up these fantasy outcomes where like all these sane people in Russia coup uh, Putin, I guess, assassinate him or something, and then everything just goes back to normal tomorrow. What what are they thinking? I don't know, man. I I got to say that this has become only worse and significantly worse and like increasingly bad. And it's it's really frightening. <laughs> then, did you see that video of uh I don't know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, it's just been on my mind like I haven't really been thinking about anything else. That Biden like, video? Yeah, the Biden video from like 7 months ago from like February where he was in a press conference it, uh, and he said, if Russia, this is like when they were thinking that Russia might invade, right? They were like, there's 140,000 troops on the border. They could go anytime. And he, he said, if they cross that border, like with tanks, Nord Stream 2 is going to be gone. Oh, I've seen that. I've seen that clip. Oh, that was way back then? That was Wait. in February. Oh, February. I thought, for some reason, I thought you said that was like. Well, like over 10 years ago. Yeah, no, I, I think that. It's circulated very widely on social media. Yeah, but, but on social media, but nobody in the media is talking about it. Mm. Like nobody's played that clip on the news 
They're just, they're just like, yeah, uh, it was sabotaged. They don't know it, but all, all fingers are pointing to Russia. <laughs> I'm like, what the fuck is going on? How is how did we get to this level of, of insanity? Also, I read this uh, post or whatever that said, like, basically all the all the pollution that the now leaking um, Nord Stream 2 is doing is essentially like having nuked the atmosphere. So it's just, okay, we got that. Um, good luck in the next uh, uh, Paris Accords, whatever. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm sure America will have a ton of credibility uh, when like China and India and all those countries are at the bargaining table for reducing greenhouse emissions. I, I, I feel like it's gotten to the point where like Americans, like we're so, we're talking about She-Hulk. We're talking about fucking uh, what are we talking about these days we're talking you know we're still talking blonde. about blonde I, I, blonde's getting a lot of uh blowback uh, yeah blonde number one movie whatever. on netflix but still like um, we are not prepared as a people to talk about sh- shit like this so I, I feel like it's almost like they don't have to lie to us they're just like yeah they don't they can't process this like people can't take this seriously and it, it's i don't know man i maybe I, i've always been one to sort of like maybe catastrophize a little bit or maybe a lot. I don't know. I feel like a lot of the catastrophizing I've done over the years about Asian people, it, stuff that was going to happen to Asian people kind of came true. So I don't know, like maybe, maybe I should trust myself a little bit on this one, but this, this sounds really fucking bad guys. Uh, I don't, I don't know where this, what, what is going to happen this winter or into next year, but it, it, it's, it's like the U S is not, we're, we are not looking for an offer. Like, we're not looking for a way to, to fix this or settle this. We just want to go. We really, really want to go to war. It's weird. I don't know why, but that's well, what I, Well, okay. Let, let's say that uh, there's going to be an impending financial crisis. I guess that would be the only way for the like existing government to try to stave off uh, Trump uh part two or or whatever maybe like we are so unaware of the house of cards that is our actual economy that like we're not quite ready to accept that if we don't basically like utterly destroy russian influence in in europe and maintain our like sort of hegemonic status that if we don't do that like our economy is literally going to collapse and it won't it won't come back and they and and somehow these deep state people know it and they're just like, look, trust me, it, like it's worth it. I know you think I'm a craven liar. You know I think I'm like fucking dangerous, and we're gonna start World War Three. But trust me, the alternative is, is even worse. That that's what scares me is like that that they actually have calculated this out and said, yep, we we're, we're gonna risk nuclear war with Putin over this because the alternative is even worse. It's I don't know. No. I don't know. Sorry, guys. Sorry to be a downer. No, but... no. Let's let's end it on on a high note, <laughs> which is. Erling Holland, this guy, Who? this fucking guy. Oh, that crazy guy. The crazy guy. Uh, oh Albino Orc was versus... a pretty good description because that's exa- yeah, uh, that's exactly I, what he looks I like. I coined that. I'm gonna I'm gonna copyright that. The Albino Orc, the the Norwegian. Um, what what's the superlative starting with N? He's not even a typical orc. He's like one of those Orukai or whatever. The oh yeah the, yeah the yeah elite... that'd be, yeah that's that's what I meant by albino yeah, orukai. The, the orcs are are like puny little goblins. I, I meant the the superior um the the ubermensch orc the urukai. This guy man, this absolutely insane. Three hat tricks in three home games. <laughs> Dude, wow. let me ask you, what makes him so good? Because I watched some of his highlights and it's not like spectacular. 
spectacular okay, yeah. stuff. But That's a really good, so good question because okay, so some people say okay, he's big, he's like six three, six four. But you know what? That's like that's that's quite big. But you've got other strikers that big. Alvaro Morata is like that big, but he is notoriously crappy. But uh, I saw this video. His like superior skill is that he apparently scans the field way more than every, anyone else. Like if you oh, so track it's his like eyes, intelligence is like he is situational. Like Terminator. Awareness. I think that mm. that that should be his nickname. He looks like the Terminator. He's this. So he's always in the right place at the right time. Yeah. So it, it, like he he's always like you know because he's he's a striker, so he's not gonna have the ball most of the time. He's constantly looking around him, like who's where, mm. where should I be, where's like a, a, a potential space, which is why a lot of goals he scores kind of looks easy. But again, if it were that easy, every every team would have uh, like a top class striker, which is like the hardest position to fill because it's so hard to find a good reliable goal scorer. And I mean, just just to give you perspective, he has 14 goals right now. I think they've all. I think the Premier League season is only about six or seven games in. The next uh, highest scorer, this total nobody called uh, you know Harry Kane, has seven. And just to put in perspective, um, Son Heung-min and Mohamed Salah won the Golden Boot with 23 goals last year for the oh, whole wow. season. Uh, Holland is already he's uh, more than halfway, more than halfway there. <laughs> only wow. six or seven games. <laughs> I think that other stat that came, that that you had that meme for it was like comparing like how many goals they had, I guess, in in professional play by the age of 22. Yeah, so uh, these two uh, scrubs named Lionel Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo, by the time they were 22, <laughs> scored roughly about 50 goals each. Holland has 170. Holy, what the fuck? Yeah, it's yeah. crazy. It's absolutely in, in real competition too, right? Real in the competition, Bundesliga. yeah. Uh, a lot of it, German league. I, I, he was playing the Austrian league uh, in the, before in the Norwegian league, but I think um, a lot of it came in the German league. He's been playing for Borussia Dortmund for the last like two or three seasons. Just, but he blo- you, I mean, him blowing the doors open in in the Premier League shows that yeah, it wasn't a it wasn't a fluke. I mean, it wasn't like oh it was yeah, so he stupid. Just- so, some people were seriously doubting him. Like oh, he, he's like yeah, but the Premier League is like so much faster and and, and stronger. <laughs> yeah. Okay, you put him on on the easily the best team in the Premier League, probably the world, the best coach Pep Guardiola, uh, the best playmaker Kevin De Bruyne, and and you you put him on that team and you don't expect him to to thrive it's like putting like a uh, prime lebron on on the prime warriors it's just like obviously gonna obviously dominate um he's the magnus carlson of uh soccer <laughs> yeah um i mean well magnus carlson that that whole saga right now is, is ridiculous with him but the only uh, tragedy with him is he's norwegian so he may never play in a world cup mm. oh yeah. Yeah, they need to um they need to um create a United Scandinavia. If Sweden, Norway and um what's the Iceland all combine for uh, football purposes. Yeah, I mean Sweden always makes it um and Iceland sometimes makes it. Are you a Man City I, fan, Chris, or are you just like No, 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 no. I mean I I, can't, okay. I don't care anything about Man City. But the thing is Manchester City has been the most dominant Premier League team of the last decade, but nobody really cares because they they just like they're just kind of too ruthlessly efficient. Uh they just never had a kind of like iconic player. Even though like Kevin De Bruyne, David De Silva, uh Aguero, these are all great, great players. But I think this guy is just such um I mean he just he just looks goofy too. I don't know. That's why I love him. He just looks like Maybe he has the power to like unite all of Eurasia and put an end to this uh yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you said, like I said send, put, send him put into him, Ukraine with a send him into Ukraine with a ball. Yeah, there's nothing he can't do. Look, if he can, if he can score three hat tricks in three matches, I'm sure he could end. He could end a war. Yeah, easy, easy peasy. Come there's on, a solution. Yeah. 
But anyway, uh, a joy to watch. Good way to end on a on a high note. <laughs> yep. Uh, Boba uh, libs everywhere still. Uh, we're gonna go to World War Three, and top goal scorer in the world is uh, a Norwegian an orc. Orc. Yeah. <laughs> Top concerns. All right. Okay. Thanks for joining us for this episode 400. Uh, more episodes to come, and as I said, uh, possible future new developments for Plan A. Keep keep in tune. We'll announce anything uh, once more concrete plans are made. Catch you next time, everyone. Until then, bye. See ya. See ya, guys.